Due to the graphic nature of this murder case, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes dramatizations and discussions of murder and assault that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. On an eerie October night in 1961, something wasn't right in Transylvania. Transylvania College in Kentucky, that is. At 3 a.m. on October 27th, some night owls in an all-girl dorm were transfixed by a woman wandering their campus. What is she doing? What if she sees us watching? We should close the blinds. Too late. She's coming up the lawn. Please, have you seen my daughter? Betty Gail Brown? Oh, Mrs. Brown, I'm so sorry I didn't recognize you. The police were just here. I know she was studying here, but your house mother told me she left hours ago and I, I can't find her car and, and... Sit down, Mrs. Brown. We'll make some tea and keep you company. No, I can't. The police will find her any minute. Here, take my hand. Let go! If you don't know where she is, I'll find Betty Gale myself. Before the sun rose, Mrs. Brown's daughter would be found. But sadly, she would not be found alive. This is Unsolved Murders, True Crime Stories, a ParCast original. I'm your host, Carter Roy. And I'm your host, Wendy McKenzie. Every Tuesday, we dive into the world of a real unsolved murder and try to solve the case. You can find episodes of Unsolved Murders and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Unsolved Murders for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Unsolved Murders in the search bar. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. This is our investigation into the 1961 murder of Kentucky college student Betty Gale Brown. We'll cover her life, her death and the strange case of the suspect who admitted to murdering her and then dramatically reversed his story. Betty Gail Brown, don't you dare leave this house without a balanced breakfast. Ugh, Mother, I'm late for class. Are you telling me that dining hall makes a better breakfast than your mother? (laughs) Fair point. Their toast tastes like cardboard. Oh, Betty Gail, take my car today. And drop your mother off at work. I gotta get your car heater fixed before the winter comes. Damn French manufacturing. (laughs) If you hate the Simca so much, why'd you buy it for her? Because Dad couldn't say no to me. Quincy, how'd we raise such a brat? Nonsense. Betty Gale is perfect. Perfectly late for my biology study group. Come on, you two. Betty Gale Brown was born on May 4th, 1942 and lived a charmed life in her home city of Lexington, Kentucky. Though it's a bustling city of roughly 320,000 people today, it had more of a small-town feel back then, with a population of ranging from around 50 to 60,000 people. By the time Betty Gale was 19 in 1961, her middle-class family had a nice house on Lackawanna Road. Her 43-year-old father, Hargis, sold insurance, and her 39-year-old mother, Quincy, was a part-time interior decorator. 
Betty Gale was one of roughly 650 students at Lexington's Transylvania College, now known as Transylvania University. The prestigious school, affectionately known as Transy, was founded in 1780, making it one of the oldest in the U.S. Betty Gale was a National Honor Society student at Lafayette High School and maintained her academic excellence with a 3.11 GPA at Transylvania. By the fall of 1961, she was a sophomore French major taking diverse classes like dance and biology. She also sang in the Transylvania College Choir. Unlike most students, Betty Gale was a commuter who lived at home. She drove her car, a 1959 baby blue French Simca, three miles to campus every day. While most college students might balk at being under their parents' eye, Betty Gale enjoyed living at home and was especially close to her mother, Quincy. She was a model daughter and even made time in her busy life to teach Sunday school. She almost sounds too perfect, but there was another side to her. Not a dark side, more like a fun side. Betty Gale was devoted to school, church, and family. But she was also active in the Phi Mu sorority, indulged in the occasional cigarette, and was perhaps a little boy crazy. Or maybe the boys were a little Betty crazy. Excerpts from her diary show that pretty, petite Betty Gale had a robust rotation of men orbiting her, much to her despair and delight. October 1st, 1960. My first college entry. Rick came over to me at the dance tonight. He told me that he thought too much of me and respected me too much to try to take advantage of me. I was speechless. And that is something. January 31st, 1961. We used the Ouija board. And it said I was going to marry Dawn, have four kids, and be happy. February 7th. Accidentally had lunch with Cal. February 24th. Kissed Cal. April 23rd. I think I hate Cal. Betty Gale never had a serious college boyfriend. She enjoyed playing the field, and in the fall of 1961, she was casually dating a University of Kentucky football player. Maybe she was just too busy for a commitment. Between her exciting love life, her devotion to God, her dedication to family, and the demands of college, Betty Gale's life was a lot to handle, but she balanced it all with effortless grace. On the morning of October 26, 1961, Betty Gale had breakfast with her parents before racing off to college. She drove her father's car since he was taking her car to the shop for repairs. Betty Gale attended class, saw friends, and studied for a biology exam set for the next day. After school, she headed home for a dinner of steak and baked potatoes. Betty Gale, how's that studying coming along? Ugh, terribly. I'm going to hurry back after dinner for a study group at Forer Hall. Oh, I thought we might all watch some TV. Why don't you two go to the drive-in? You'll just die for the picture that's playing. Guess it's a date night. But Betty will come right home after studying. Don't I always? Go! Have fun. I'll be home by 11. After helping her mother with the dishes, Betty Gale drove her newly repaired car back to campus. She parked on a street called Broadway across from the all-girl dorm, Forer Hall. By the time she met with her study group, it was 7.15 p.m. 
Betty Gale studied until 10 p.m., then got permission from the dorm house mother to stay until midnight. She told her parents she'd be home between 10 and 11, but never called to let them know she'd be home even later. Around 11.55 p.m., Betty Gale packed up, bid goodbye to her group, and crossed Broadway to reach her car. It's likely that her only worry was acing her exam. As she got into her car, she barely noticed another vehicle drive up. The man behind the wheel rolled down his window. And gave a friendly hello. It was her 19-year-old friend, who we'll call Archie, to protect his identity. Oh, Archie, you scared me half to death. It is not nice to lurk. I'm not lurking. I just dropped off a date. Say, is that a Simca you're driving? That's French, right? We... Betty Gale, what's wrong? What are you doing here so late? Studying with the girls for this bio exam, praying I don't fail. You did seem tense during dance class today. You sure you're okay? I'll be doing a lot better after the test. You're Betty Gale Brown. You'll ace it. I'll see you tomorrow. Thanks, Archie. Sweet dreams. As Archie drove to his dorm, he saw Betty Gale Simka cruise past. It seemed to him like she was headed home to Lackawanna Road. To Archie, it was just a chance encounter with a stressed-out friend. But it was also the last time anyone close to Betty Gale Brown saw her alive. Betty Gale's parents got home from the movies at 10 p.m. They noticed their daughter's car wasn't back yet, but they weren't concerned. Hun, I've got a hell of a headache. I'm going to hit the hay. You coming? No, I'll wait up for Betty Gale. I've got a magazine I've been meaning to read. Ever the loving mother, Quincy Brown got into Betty Gale's bed with a heating pad to warm it up for her when she got home. After finishing her magazine, she saw it was 12.40 a.m. and Betty Gale was still out. Not wanting to wake her husband, she threw a coat over her pajamas and drove the quick three miles to Transylvania. She circled the campus but couldn't find Betty's car. Thinking she'd just missed her, Quincy drove home. She wasn't in a panic yet, just mildly concerned. After realizing her daughter still wasn't home, Quincy drove back to campus for another fruitless search. By this point, it was 1.45 a.m. Hargis. Hargis, wake up. Betty Gale isn't home, and it's almost 2 a.m. Uh? Look, maybe she gave a friend a ride or stopped for a bite to eat. Could you phone the police? What if she got into a car accident? God forbid. Oh, you're right. I'll call now. By 2.30 a.m., Hargis and Quincy had called the police, the hospital, a few of Betty Gale's friends, local restaurants, and the four-hall dorm house mother. They even called the University of Kentucky Football Lodge, since Betty Gale was seeing a player there. Nobody had news except for the Forer Hall house mother, who assured them that Betty Gale left the dorm at midnight. As Hargis waited by the phone, Quincy drove back to campus a third time. Though officers were patrolling campus, Quincy had to keep looking for herself. She drew the attention of girls at Forer Hall, who had been asked about Betty Gale by a police officer minutes earlier. They invited Quincy to stay with them while the cops searched, but she wouldn't rest until she found her daughter. Luckily, or unluckily, she was about to. As she got back in her car, 
she noticed a distressed policeman approaching. She got out of the car and ran to him. Officer, I'm Betty Gale Brown's mother. Is there any news? I, I couldn't just sit at home. Ma'am. I, I figured I'd be more helpful here, though of course you're the experts. Ma'am, we found her. Only, Mrs. Brown, I'm sorry to tell you like this, but your daughter is dead. What? It was 3 a.m. on October 27th, 1961. Moments before Quincy's police encounter, Another officer had made a shocking discovery. Detective Donald Duckworth visited the girls at Forer Hall, then left to patrol the surrounding streets. He saw a blue 1959 Simca parked at the corner of 3rd Street and Upper Street, just around the corner from Forer. It was the car that everyone was looking for. As he approached, he saw Betty Gale in the driver's seat. Only something was wrong. Her head was cocked back at an unnatural angle, a cut on her forehead dripped blood over her closed eyes, and her neck was severely bruised. Betty Gale was dead, and from the undergarment hanging around her neck, it was clear she'd been choked to death with her very own bra. When we return, we'll dive into the investigation that had all of Lexington anxious to identify Betty Gale's killer. And now, back to our story. In the early hours of October 27, 1961, Quincy Brown rode home with a policeman. Her missing daughter had been found dead in her car, strangled. Quincy was surprisingly calm on that three-mile ride. She only had one question. My husband, does he know? I can't say for certain, but I'm sure the station is called by now. Good. But as Quincy saw her husband at the door with a quizzical expression, her heart sank. She knew he was unaware, and it was up to her to break the terrible news. Quincy, what, what's going on? Where's Betty Gale? Hargis, she's gone. Betty Gale's gone. No. No, 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 no. As the Browns grappled with this life-altering moment, the Lexington authorities got to work. They had a crime scene to inspect and an autopsy to carry out. Led by Captain Brian Henry, the police scoured Betty Gale's car for clues. Both rear doors and the driver's door were locked, but the front passenger door wasn't. This could mean the killer escaped from the passenger side. However, police learned the lock might have been defective, unable to latch at all. Inside the Simca, they found drops of blood on the rear floorboard, the driver's side window, and the dashboard. They hoped it might be the killer's, but tests revealed the blood type was O positive, just like Betty Gale's. It was almost certainly hers, and probably came from the cut on her forehead. Betty's books, purse, wallet, credit cards, and keys were all accounted for. As nothing of value was taken, police ruled out robbery as a motive. The most promising bits of evidence were three sets of partial fingerprints on the dashboard. The police hoped they would reveal who attacked Betty Gale Brown. A pathologist at the Lexington Clinic performed Betty Gale's autopsy. He determined the cut on her forehead was a superficial wound that came from the killer ramming her head against the dashboard. 
Her bruised neck and crushed larynx proved the cause of death was suffocation by strangulation. In this case, by her own bra. The killer's motive was still unknown, but the police had a theory they were hoping to prove. Doctor, given the nature of the weapon, this was sexual assault, right? I thought so too, but after my examination, I'd say it's incredibly unlikely. She was strangled by her own brassiere. The killer must have had, well, access. Right, but her outfit's intact. Underwear on, shirt tucked in, shorts buttoned up, sweater and raincoat on, not a tear or wrinkle or button out of place. I can't for the life of me figure out how her undergarment was even removed. Maybe the killer dressed her back up before escaping? No. The only injuries she sustained were on her head and neck. I did a full exam, and there's no indication of any sexual activity, consensual or otherwise. The only real thing of note is that Betty Gale was menstruating. I see. Time of death? By my estimate, 1.15 a.m. Betty Gale left campus at midnight, but her car was found back on campus at 3 a.m. on October 27th. With an estimated time of death of 1.15, this left at least an hour unaccounted for. The police questioned Betty Gale's friends to find out what they could. Up first were the girls from Forer Hall in her study group. They assured the police that Betty Gale had no enemies and was a safe driver who always locked her doors and never picked up hitchhikers. They also believed her behavior seemed normal on the night she died. None of this was too helpful, but a friend of Betty Gale's did help clarify why Betty Gale's bra might have been off. I'm sorry to be crude, but this brassiere's really got us scratching our heads. Well, was Betty Gale on... I'm sorry, maybe this is too strange of a question? No, go on. Was she on her monthly? Because... Uh, I feel like I'm spilling her secrets. See, Betty Gale had a bit of an issue when she was on her period. What issue? Her breasts would get irritated. Sometimes, when it was just us girls, she'd take her bra off to be more comfortable. Huh. As the autopsy indicated, Betty Gale was on her period at her time of death. The police were confounded by how her killer removed her bra without disturbing the rest of her outfit, but it's possible her bra was already off. Maybe Betty Gale, looking for some relief, took it off before her drive home. And maybe her killer saw it loose and took the opportunity to strangle her with it. In addition, if Betty Gale never let strangers into her car, the killer may have been someone she knew. And someone she knew was already racing to prove his innocence. Um, excuse me? I'd like to speak with an officer about... Look, kid, there's been a murder. I know. It's Betty Gale Brown, and I'm the last person who saw her alive. The 19-year-old student known to us as Archie went to the police on October 27th. He'd briefly spoken to Betty Gale as she left campus at midnight and knew he'd be a prime suspect. So he got ahead of any suspicions. After a polygraph test, police felt confident Archie wasn't a suspect. His story checked out. The police then poured over Betty Gale's diary and questioned the men she had dated. Though sexual assault was ruled out, they wanted to cover their bases. None were determined to be involved, including the football player she'd recently been seeing. 
All they learned was that Betty Gale never slept with any of them and never used her car on dates. So it's not very likely she was with a boy that night. However, the possibility that she was with a woman soon became a crucial theory. Two days after the murder on October 29th, an unnamed waitress told police she'd seen Betty Gale at a restaurant the night she was killed. It was, um, oh, I guess 12, 15 a.m. I was working this one set of booths and that Betty Gale girl came in with a friend. Another girl. Can you describe the woman accompanying her? Hmm, average? College-aged, sounded American. She was taller than Betty Gale, and she had on green and beige pants. How long were they in that booth? Not too long. The dead girl got a hot chocolate and her friend got tea. They drank their drinks, and then Betty Gale paid me. I'm not too sure when they left, but they did leave together. Had you seen Betty Gale and this particular friend before? Honestly, I never saw him in my life. We get so many college kids, so they all kind of blend together. But when I saw her face in the paper, it hit me. I served that dead girl hot chocolate right before she was killed. It was plausible that Betty Gale left campus at midnight, picked up or met a friend, and got to the diner by 12.15 a.m. So the story was a solid lead. The waitress was suddenly thrust into the high-stakes investigation. Police brought her to the Transylvania campus to identify Betty Gale's companion among the students, but she couldn't pick anyone out. They even took her to Betty Gale's funeral on October 30th. Surrounded by Betty Gale's loved ones and serenaded by her friends in the Transylvania College Choir, the waitress and a detective tried to keep a low profile as they scanned the room. This feels wrong. I didn't know her. I shouldn't be here. Keep your voice down. Look, half her college is here, so just keep an eye out for the woman you saw. (sighs) Lord, please forgive me for spying at a funeral. Sadly, the waitress didn't see anyone who matched her memory of Betty Gale's companion. This promising lead was now a dead end. Her story was cast into doubt when two male students who knew Betty Gale reported they were at the same restaurant that night and Betty Gale wasn't. Then someone else claimed to see Betty at a different restaurant. It seemed everybody had a story about seeing Betty Gale, but this was almost certainly because of the media attention that the murder received. Many outlets printed detailed articles about the investigation, including full pictures of Betty Gale's dead body. Police suspected a leak within their ranks, but they had also questioned dozens of people in their hunt for information. Any one of them could have spoken to a reporter. The leaks led to unreliable tips from well-meaning citizens. The most intriguing ones involved sightings of a dark-haired man fleeing campus on the night of October 26th. But the police were unable to connect any of the stories to the murder. As the first week of the investigation went by, the only solid evidence police had acquired were the three different sets of fingerprints in Betty Gale's car. After analysis, they learned the prints belonged to two men and one woman. Captain Henry hatched an ambitious plan to test every Transylvania college student's fingerprints to try to find a match. His first priority was testing every male student, even though his team had no concrete proof that the killer was male. Nobody wanted to look like they were hiding anything, so dozens of men volunteered to get tested and clear their name. 
After four days, police had fingerprinted half of the school's 250 male students, but no prints were a match. School administrators were frustrated by the disruptive police presence, and the police were expending a lot of manpower without making any progress. They decided to stop testing male students and refocus their efforts by narrowing their search instead of widening it. Upon re-examining the prints they had acquired, police realized that they had never actually tested Betty Gale's parents. Once they corrected their mistake, police were dismayed to learn that two of the three sets of prints in the car belonged to Hargis and Quincy Brown. Quincy regularly used the car, and Hargis drove it to the mechanic on the day of the murder so police didn't feel their prints implied any suspicious activity. The third set of prints belonged to the mechanic, who was with his family on the night of the murders and was thus ruled out as a suspect. As 1961 turned into 1962, Lexington authorities were stumped. They'd tested all the evidence and spoken to hundreds of locals, but were no closer to catching Betty Gale's killer. At least 24 officers were assigned to the case, and they crisscrossed the country to pursue various leads. In New York, a drunk young man was arrested for dressing in women's clothes and wielding a revolver in an attempt to catch thieves who had broken into his car. When police searched him, they found an envelope with many newspaper clippings from Kentucky, all about Betty Gale's death. He was a Transylvania graduate whose friend had sent him the clippings to update him on the murder mystery at their alma mater. The fact that he had the clippings on him a year after the killing was odd, but he was ruled out as a suspect when they learned he was in New York when Betty Gale was killed. He wasn't their man. They also followed a Transylvania dropout to his family home in Michigan and a disgruntled ex-employee of the college to Atlanta. Both men mysteriously left Kentucky around the time of the murder, but both ended up having solid reasons for leaving that had nothing to do with Betty Gale's murder. Back in Lexington, locals spread a hurtful theory that Betty Gale was murdered by her mother. Quincy Brown was a loving mother who was entirely devastated by her daughter's murder, so this was a particularly nasty bit of town gossip. But to quell the rumors, Quincy and her husband went to the police to take a polygraph test. After that, police felt satisfied that the Browns were innocent. Though the case would remain open through 1963 and 1964, everyone involved seemed to realize they would probably never find a plausible suspect. Which is why it was such an enormous shock when early in 1965, a man thousands of miles away in Oregon confessed to murdering Betty Gale Brown. When we return, we'll investigate the surprising suspect who admitted to Betty Gale's murder and the dramatic trial that followed. Now, back to the story. In 1961, 19-year-old Betty Gale Brown was strangled with her own bra at Kentucky's Transylvania College. Police spent a year searching for her killer, but no suspect was ever arrested, until they heard a surprising confession four years later in 1965. Mr. Arnold, is this a better place to talk? Yes, yes, much better. The mind-reading machine in my cell can't hear me now. Pardon me? Sorry. <laughs> I think I'm losing it. You don't have any bourbon, do you? 
Mr. Arnold, you're in jail for drunk and disorderly behavior. Get to the point. I'm realizing something. Something terrible. When I lived in Kentucky three or four years ago, I think I killed a woman. Who did you kill? A college student. Her name was Betty Gail Brown. In late January of 1965, Alex Arnold Jr. was serving a 10-day jail sentence for disorderly public intoxication. He was arrested in Klamath Falls, Oregon, but was originally a native of Lexington, Kentucky, just like Betty Gail Brown. 33-year-old Arnold was a middle school dropout. Though he'd initially found success in his 20s as a horse trainer and groomer, his life took a turn for the worse when he enlisted in the Marines during the Korean War. He served in 1952 and 1953, but when he returned to Lexington to marry and have a child, it became clear that war had changed him. He began drinking heavily, and in April of 1962, six months after Betty Gale's murder, he was arrested for running a ring of sex workers. Upon his release from prison in 1963, he was unable to find work or quit drinking, and his marriage soon deteriorated. Feeling like there was nothing left for him at home, Arnold set off to hitchhike across the country. He worked odd jobs in exchange for liquor and a place to crash. He arrived in Oregon in 1964 and kept a low profile for a few months, until he was arrested for public intoxication on January 16, 1965. Arnold was sentenced to 10 days in the Klamath Falls Jail. After three days, he developed delirium tremens, a severe form of confusion and amnesia that stems from alcohol withdrawal. He also couldn't eat or sleep, and his body shook violently. Then came the hallucinations. Arnold talked to his toilet paper, claimed that creatures were infesting his cell, and insisted that a mind-reading machine was observing him at all times. Eventually, a suicidal Arnold insisted that he needed to speak to the police about something urgent. When Klamath Falls detective Dennis Lilly arrived, Alex Arnold gave a detailed confession to the 1961 murder of Betty Gale Brown. It was in the middle of the night, and I found her in a car on campus. She was undressed, well, partially, and she was making love with another woman. Is that why you killed her? No, no. I asked her for a match. I needed a smoke. She and her lady friend cussed me out, and we got into a fight. How did you kill her? First, I slammed her head on the dash to knock her out, but I was worried she'd tell the cops, or they'd think I'd raped her. So, I used her bra to strangle her. What about her companion? I don't know. She must have ran off. Mr. Arnold, you said you thought you killed her. Can you explain that? I... <laughs> I don't know. Sometimes I think it was a dream. Maybe it's all just a strange and terrible dream, but I'm 99% sure I killed her. Arnold's story was shocking, so Lily contacted Lexington authorities. Captain Brian Henry and Lieutenant Morris Carter arrived in Klamath Falls on January 20th, 1965. They'd both investigated the 1961 case and were eager for a chance to finally have a real suspect. Arnold was now more lucid and cooperative, but still felt adamant that he killed Betty Gale. He even waived his right to an attorney. He wanted to be convicted. 
Arnold gave a full written confession. Well, this time, he claimed that on the night of October 26, 1961, he was drunkenly wandering the campus in search of a place to nap. After fighting with Betty Gale and knocking her out, he saw a bra on the seat beside her. I hung it around her neck and strangled her by putting my hands on each end of the brassiere and putting my knee against the back of the seat for leverage. I held it there for about a minute and a half. The only thing that she did was just quiver a little bit. I threw the brassiere on the front seat and closed the door. He also mentioned finding Betty Gale's shirt fully unbuttoned, which doesn't track with the crime scene, where her shirt was buttoned up. But Arnold had an answer for that. Claiming he didn't want police to think it was a rape, he went back and buttoned it for her. As I was buttoning up the blouse from the bottom up and being crazy drunk, (laughs) I thought, what a cute little son of a bitch you are, and kissed her lightly on the top of the breast. He confessed to wiping his prints from the dashboard, pulling the left window shut with his bare hands, and pressing the lock buttons at the base of three of the car doors, leaving the front passenger door unlocked. After that, he went to the apartment of an older female friend named May Hedges. We had a drink of whiskey. I told her I had just killed a woman. She said, where at? And I sat down on Broadway. Not believing me, she said, ah, (laughs) and ignored me. I then laid down on her couch and passed out. There are a few things to note. Arnold said he left the bra on the seat, but police found it around Betty Gale's neck. He was very drunk at the time, so maybe he misremembered. He also said Betty Gale's partner ran off, but it seems unlikely that she wouldn't help her friend or go to the police. While she may have wanted to hide the nature of their relationship, she could have still reported the crime. Keeping it a secret feels like a cold thing for a friend or lover to do. Arnold mentioned leaving one door unlocked, which tracks with what was found at the crime scene. But in his previous confession to Detective Lilly, Arnold claimed to have locked all the car doors. It's a minor detail, but it's significant because Captain Henry and Lieutenant Carter wrote Arnold's confession. He just dictated it. It seems entirely possible they adjusted Arnold's statement to make his arrest more expedient. That would be the question that drove Arnold's defense team in the ensuing trial. Alex Arnold was taken home to Lexington on January 23, 1965, and placed in prison to await his indictment. His assigned pro bono lawyer was Amos Eblen, a 60-year-old Harvard Law graduate who'd spent time as a judge. Also on his team was the much younger Robert G. Lawson, who would go on to write a book about the trial. Though Eblen wasn't necessarily convinced of Arnold's innocence, he felt he deserved a fair trial. We should note that no trial transcripts were preserved, so the events described are reconstructed from articles, records, and memories. At a preliminary hearing on February 8, 1965, the courtroom was full of onlookers, including Betty Gale's parents. The prosecution focused on the fact that Arnold had given a full confession with details that matched the crime scene. May Hedges, the older woman Arnold allegedly confessed to on the night of the killing, was of particular interest to both sides of the case. Lexington detectives found her in Florida, where she had recently moved. 
Your Honor, she's living in Florida with her sister now. She's in very poor health, almost fully blind, with a broken leg. We tried, but sadly, we just couldn't get a statement. Their report felt suspicious to Arnold's lawyer, Amos Eblen, so he tracked down May Hedge's Florida phone number himself. Though she was indeed old and sick, she was quite forthcoming in her response. Uh, Arnold wasn't a friend exactly, but we drank at the same bars, and sometimes if he was broke, I'd buy him a drink or fix him one at home. I, I felt bad for him. Did Mr. Arnold confess to a murder on the night of October 26, 1961? I can't recall that exact night. It's possible he crashed on my couch. It happened sometimes. But I don't ever remember him confessing to a murder. And, and that's what I told those detectives when they came to see me, too. Given May's forthrightness, Eblin became convinced that the detectives had intentionally ignored her statement because it didn't fit the narrative they needed to prove Arnold's guilt. This was the first flaw in Arnold's supposedly ironclad confession, and the next crack was even more intriguing. Arnold told his lawyers that Betty Gale's mother visited him in prison. No visitor logs indicated that she went to the prison, so Eblin couldn't prove that it had happened. But Arnold's statement about the visit contained a shocking story. I didn't say a word the whole time. And all she told me was, you did not kill my daughter. Maybe Arnold lied about the visit, but Betty Gill's parents truly didn't think he was their daughter's killer. A fact which was later relayed to Eblin in a confidential message from the Browns' lawyer. The Browns didn't believe their daughter would ever be romantically involved with a woman, so they chose to discount Arnold's confession. Of course, there was likely a bias here. Betty Gale's romantic involvement with a woman would have caused a scandal in the conservative South of the 1960s, so perhaps the Browns wanted to avoid more public controversy. Of course, Betty's diary did contain many comments about the men she was seeing, which is why they may have felt their rejections were well-founded. Whatever the case may have been, even more doubt was cast on Arnold's guilt when in June 1965, Eblin received a visit from Arnold's aunt, Imogene Marshall. On the night the girl was killed, my nephew was at my place. He was drinking at the Black Cup with my husband. My husband got too drunk, so Alex brought him home. And Mr. Arnold stayed at your home that night? I had to take my kids to the doctor the next morning, so I needed someone at home to help my husband through his hangover. I asked Alex to stay. Mrs. Marshall, Alex has been in jail for months. Why wouldn't you come to us with this information sooner? I told Alex's mother about it so she could tell him when she visited him in jail. I don't know why he hasn't told you, but it's the God-honest truth. Once Eblin's team was granted access to Betty Gale's car, they found other factors that complicated Arnold's confession. They had to confront him. Alex, parts of your story just don't make sense. You said you pulled Betty Gale's car window shut by hand, but my associate and a mechanic couldn't do that. And you specifically stated that you pressed the lock buttons at the base of the car's windows, right? Well, that's what I recall doing. But the locks are on the door handles. There are no buttons at the base of the windows, Alex. Now your aunt swears you were at her house and Betty Gale's folks say you're innocent. Are you saying you still really think that you killed her? I, I'm not sure. 
I, I, I just don't know what to believe anymore. For the first time, Alex Arnold seemed unsure. His trial began on October 4, 1965, with Judge Joseph Bradley presiding over a packed courtroom. The public was eager to learn the fate of Betty Gale's supposed killer, and prosecutors were eager to satisfy the public. The prosecution argued that Arnold had a criminal past and willingly confessed to the crime in great detail. While some of his details weren't a match, they still showed a great knowledge of how the murder played out. In his defense, Evelyn argued that Arnold was an alcoholic with deep guilt about his life choices. He was also aware of the details of Betty Gale's death thanks to the many articles written on the murder over the years. While Arnold may have been convinced of his guilt, his confession was taken in jail during a psychotic break, at a time when Arnold was also convinced that a mind-reading machine was spying on him. Evelyn felt it was highly possible that Lexington detectives coaxed a statement out of a suicidal Arnold, who was eager to punish himself further. Evelyn brought in May Hedges to testify that she never heard Arnold confess to a murder, and Arnold's Aunt Imogene to testify that he was at her house on the night of the murder. Even Betty Gale's parents took to the stand to assure the jury that their daughter would never be involved with another woman. Ultimately, the most intriguing element of the trial was Arnold's own testimony. I know I confessed, but with everything I've learned in the past few months, I, I'm just not sure anymore. Now, I know I said I was 99% sure I killed her, but now that number is far lower. Alex, can you please tell the jury, to the best of your ability, what your thoughts are on the events of October 26th and 27th, 1961? <sighs> right now, I don't believe I killed Betty Gale. I can't say for sure that I did, and I can't say for sure that I didn't. But I really don't believe I did. The jury deliberated for over six hours, but never reached a verdict. They were completely deadlocked and felt that they would never reach a decision. Judge Bradley declared a mistrial and scheduled a retrial for January 1966, but no new trial date was ever set. It seems after the first trial's frustrating outcome, both the public and the prosecution's enthusiasm had waned. Alex Arnold was never retried for Betty Gale's murder. He mostly stayed in Lexington in the following years, drinking and getting into scrapes with the law. In 1980, he died of cirrhosis in a veteran's hospital at just 49 years of age. No other suspect was ever seriously investigated, though this may be because of a startling discovery made in 1988. 27 years after the murder, Lexington Sergeant Fran Root went to review the case in the hopes that new forensic technology might reveal Betty Gale's killer. However, Root was stunned to discover that all the evidence files from the Arnold trial had been destroyed. We don't know who destroyed them or why, but any hope of solving the murder was now practically non-existent. In 2010, Lexington police briefly investigated Nolan Ray George, a convicted serial killer who would have been 18 at the time of the 1961 murder. Most of his killings occurred in the 1980s, but his signature move was reminiscent of Betty Gale's murder. He liked to choke women with their undergarments. But no definitive connection was found between Nolan Ray George and Betty Gale Brown. 
In my opinion, this means Alex Arnold Jr. is still our most credible suspect. He confessed to the crime with a detailed story, and both his military and criminal past prove his capacity for violence. His heavy drinking explains why his later recollections were fuzzy. And though mentions of a dark-haired man on campus on the night of the murder weren't proven, Arnold did have dark hair. Mm, I disagree. Arnold confessed in the throes of a psychotic break thanks to alcohol withdrawal. He was aware of the murder as he lived in Lexington in 1961, where the crime was the talk of the town. Maybe that, combined with guilt about his past, spurred him to punish himself further. And the police literally wrote his confession. Maybe they twisted the facts to crack the case. I think the true killer was a man who was never properly investigated. The murder of Betty Gale Brown remains one of Kentucky's most heartbreaking unsolved crimes. And it's also a frightening cautionary tale to parents everywhere. Her parents thought they had the best of both worlds when Betty Gale decided to commute to college. She could pursue her dreams and come home safe every night. After all, she was only a three-mile car ride away. But a quick drive home meant nothing when death hitched a ride with Betty Gale Brown. Thanks again for tuning into Unsolved Murders. We'll be back next Tuesday with a new episode. For more information on the murder of Betty Gale Brown, amongst the many sources we used, we found the book Who Killed Betty Gale Brown by Alex Arnold Jr.'s attorney, Robert G. Lawson, to be extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Unsolved Murders and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals like Unsolved Murders for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Unsolved Murders on Spotify, just open the app and type Unsolved Murders in the search bar. Several of you have asked how to help us. If you enjoy the show, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. If we live till next time. Unsolved Murders True Crime Stories was created by Max Cutler and Zaparcast Studios Original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Michael Langsner with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, Isabella Way, and Joel Stein. This episode of Unsolved Murders was written by Amin Osman with writing assistance by Abigail Cannon. The amazing cast of voice actors includes Tiana Camacho, Jerry Courtney Austin, Dan Velasquez, Joe Hernandez, and Harris Markson. It stars Wendy McKenzie and Carter Roy. 